You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Good morning, everyone. I studied uh, intercultural studies for a while um, and remember looking into how different services were started and German services are traditionally started uh, by just jumping straight in. Uh, of course, there's different denominations, but, but as a standard, each culture had these different things. You have to have tea before a lot of um, Japanese traditional Christian services. And in America, all services are supposedly start with an anecdote and a joke, but I used mine up a few weeks ago, so <laughs> I'm just going to jump in German style here, I guess. Um, I guess I did it anyways, didn't I? Look at that. Uh, today, everyone, we bring uh, the book of Galatians to a close in uh, chapter 6, verse 11 through 18. And this is a, a benediction. So it's, it's Paul's uh, final exhortation. And uh, benediction really is just the way to exhort and bless uh, from a, a, the end of a, a sermon, or uh, in this case, Paul's letter. And we've walked through each chapter of this tough love letter, uh, to people who were of diverse backgrounds. We kind of talked about over the weeks, and Matt gave an introduction at the beginning, that the church of Galatia was made up uh, predominantly of Roman and uh, pagan Celtic converts, um, or their, their descendants as well, um, as well as uh, Jewish people who would have uh, come there from uh, during the dispersion, and some of them became believers as well. Galatia was a Roman province uh, in uh, what is modern-day Turkey, and my wife and I actually met there. We met in uh, what's now the capital city, Ankara. Uh, it was the capital city of Galatia back in the day. And uh, when I lived there, I actually I read through a lot of Paul's letters, and it felt a little different to read in the place where Paul was writing those letters. Most of his letters, the epistles, um, were written to churches that were in the geographical region of Turkey. Uh, Ephesus is on the west coast of Turkey there, and, and Galatia here in kind of south-central south uh, Turkey today. Um, and it was really easy for me to imagine uh, early Christians living, and, uh, living in a setting not dissimilar to Turkey today. Uh, actually, um, there are really an estimated like 8,000 believers in Turkey right now, and that's about what the guess was of the, the church around the time that Paul wrote this letter. So similar-sized church. And in that setting, I experienced firsthand how difficult it is in a small and, and sometimes oppressed minority uh, group to have a sense of unity. There seems to be less congruent authority in a smaller body like that. And just like some of the Christian Turks of today, and certainly uh, I'm sure we can, we, we can relate that the Galatians also, nearly 2,000 years ago, had influences uh, from outside of the church, or in some cases in the church, but they were leading people astray, and it's easy to hear uh, influence from, from lots of different places, especially in a smaller context, I think, like that. I'll give a little bit of a brief overview in this series, we've learned that the Galatians were beginning to believe a false gospel, and Paul really directly and sternly is addressing them as, as foolish in some cases uh, throughout uh, his book for believing such a bogus fallacy. 
that salvation is based on works. Things we do in our bodies or legalistic practices that we make. The Galatians are being taught that they needed to supplement their faith, but Paul makes it clear that there is no such supplement. In chapter 2, verse six, uh, 16, excuse me, he says that we have believed in Jesus Christ that in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law, justified by faith. That's one of the themes of his letter here. And I personally sometimes struggle with that concept. I don't know if you can relate. Isn't it ironic that perhaps, as Paul would have said, even foolish, uh, that it's easier to live in submission to guilt and try to live under a legalistic structure of some sort, something that I make and do in my own ability, than to live free and to accept the overwhelming grace of Christ. Why would we choose slavery? Slavery, by definition, is an oppressive restriction. It's to be owned by someone or something else, and yet Christ died to free us from those restrictions. He paid the price for you and I. That's Paul's argument and plea throughout his book to the Galatians, uh, which leads us to his final note here uh, in his benediction. Let me pray, and then we'll wrap up this uh, book before we hear from, uh, actually, we're going to read through the whole, whole book here. So, Lord, this morning we come to you and we just uh, come with open hearts. Help us to hear from you. Lord, let these be your words. Um, let my words fall to the side and your words ring true, Lord. Help us to trust in uh, the finality of our sin on your cross and live in your grace. Amen. So working through the text here in these final verses, uh, Paul starts by noting, as we joked about here, the large letters uh, that he signs off with. And it's assumed that Paul was dictating to a scribe for most of the times when he writes his books. Uh, but he took the pen to scratch in his own words his final expression and plea. And he writes, and I'll, I'll read it here. It's those who want to make a good show in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The false message is given by glory-seeking false teachers. They're boasting in their own ability to follow these rules and regulations in which in and of itself seems like a contradiction. Boasting in your flesh, Paul says. They're, uh, they're earning off of the Gentile believers slavery to legalism and presenting themselves as successful in their communities to convert Gentiles back into some sort of Judaism that in order to be a good Christian, they're seeming to suggest that you have to first become a Jew of, of some sort. Let's look a little bit closer here. Paul writes that they, that is the Judaizers, uh, want to make a good show or have a good appearance. They want to boast in the fact that they converted the Gentiles, uh, excuse me, convinced the Gentiles to become circumcised. And their boast is that if they convince others to do certain things, it brings attention to the fact that they themselves have done those things 
and thereby lifts them up above the Gentiles. It's self-serving. In fact, I should actually note that uh, they're not just convincing the Gentiles to do this, but Paul says they're forcing the Gentiles into this. <clears throat> Turn too quickly, sorry. Uh, they seem to be so staunch for one, one main reason here, uh, and, and Paul says it in verse 12, that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. What persecution are they concerned with? We've seen that question asked before in this letter. In chapter 5, verse 11, Paul wrote that, If I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I think he's pointing out that salvation uh, is only through Christ's work on the cross, but that can be offensive. That uh, grace and not our own ability is all that counts. I think we as Americans can maybe relate to this sentiment. I think the self-made man or woman is praised in our society, not always for bad reasons, but uh, we pride ourselves in going to great lengths to do things in our own strength. The world looks at a person who completes a task on their own with nobody else's help as successful. But if something is done entirely for us, we may see that as weak, sometimes, or even mock someone who seemingly hadn't had everything handed to them. And my point is that the Judaizers are concerned that if they can't prove that they have earned their salvation, they'll be persecuted. Paul sort of says here, so be it. The world can't understand the full encompassing grace uh, of the cross, and that's offensive. It'll likely incur persecution. We hear that throughout even the Gospels, that we are almost guaranteed persecution in some ways. Paul even goes on to say that not even the circumcised keep the whole law, and so now with Christ, that, is effort, uh, that effort is, is pointless with, with Christ now. Listen, the, the theme of the entire Bible is that in order to rebuild our relationship with God, our sins must be atoned for by living perfectly. And yet, despite thousands of years of people trying, we just can't. It's utterly impossible until Christ. The only one who could take our place on the cross, having fulfilled the original law perfectly, he paid the great price for our sins and therefore restored that relationship and that access that we have to God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is all we should boast in, the cross. The Judaizers were boasting in their abilities and achievements, and Paul says that he will, and, and, and we should, boast in the cross. I came across this uh, exclamation in, in a commentary, Albert Barnes' commentary, that I thought wrapped up this thought really well. He says, It was a glorious Savior who died. It was a glorious love that led him to die. It was a glorious object to redeem a world and it is an unspeakable glory to which he will raise the lost and ruin sinners by his death. Oh, who would not glory in such a Savior? Compared to this, what trifles are all objects in which people usually boast? Christ's work on the cross is the only lasting thing. Not our own strength or works or abilities, or those things will fail uh, and do fail in comparison to Christ's work. Paul is urging us and his readers to boast in what is sure. 
In verse 14, uh, Paul says that the world no longer has authority over him or any attraction to him because his faith in Christ unites him with Christ's crucifixion. He says, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I unto the world. Once more, I think as we've brought up in every sermon this entire series, uh, a verse that we could all live by is chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying that Christ is now the source of his life. We may sound like we're repeating ourselves every Sunday here, but you can't avoid Paul's main point, which seems present in every paragraph that he writes throughout his book. Moving on here uh, in verse 15, Paul wrote, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. I think on, on one hand, uh, to require circumcision or, or ritualistic rule following is to deny the gospel. That's Paul's argument. But on the other hand, choosing to be circumcised is also, uh, excuse me, uncircumcised is also irrelevant. None of it counts for anything except being a new creation, Paul says. The new creation is not living by the flesh, but living by the spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Paul, Paul wrote the same thing. If, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We live a new type of life, one that's defined by grace that impacts us so much. It literally, throughout the New Testament, we read that it literally is beckoning a new world, the dawning of a new world. Um, not to sound like a, a Jurassic Park movie there, but um, this new life is one where love and joy peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control overflow from our lives as evidence of the Spirit in us. Paul's making the claim that those who are of a new creation are the true Israel, the Jerusalem above that we read about in uh, chapter 4, where the beginnings were part of the beginnings of the final restoration of that which was originally broken way back in the Garden of Eden. Unhindered relationship with God. Unconditional love because the conditions have already been met. Amen. (laughs) Verse 16, Paul goes on to say, As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. In studying for this passage, I loved the image that I learned about the word where, it's kind of a simple little word where he says, walk by this rule. Uh, That word actually is more reminiscent of like a yardstick or a ruler. Uh, It's a tool that a carpenter uh, would have used to check his work or a standard uh, to work by. And Paul's saying that the choice that we have is to surrender to Christ alone as our guide. To be in Christ and thereby a new creation. It's for all, he says, regardless of background, Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, a new creation for all who walk by that standard is who Paul is talking to, and he prays for grace, excuse me, for peace and mercy here. In verse 17, Paul is noting his accolades that he suffered for the message. He suffers for Christ with the marks of his persecution notable. 
he's mocked and persecuted outside of the church as it is, and therefore has maybe due some uh, respect and authority on the matter. He, he wrote, uh, for now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear the bod- on my body the marks of Jesus. At many points, he's bearing literal wounds that are visible, healed wounds from being stoned almost to death. Uh, he was in shipwrecks and all kinds of things that he, he physically showed on his body uh, the marks of his pursuit to let others know about Christ. Finally, uh, wrapping it up here, Paul prayerfully blesses his readers with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with their spirit, and he calls them brothers. He hasn't lost hope for them. In the entire letter of Galatians, Paul's not condemning them but rebuking them. He's challenging the readers, the the Galatians, to stand firm and to rest in the fullness of grace and not in their own actions.